Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 315. Today is August 6, 2020. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. And in today's episode, I'm going to dedicate this to celebrating the Wellsteading Podcast's 6th anniversary and to set the pace as we go into podcasting for our 7th year. Now, before I get into that, just two quick announcements. Number one, I know it's been a long time since I've taken listener questions. Many of you have expressed an interest in that. And so as my thanks and appreciation to all of you that have followed us these many years, I'd like to take on some of your listener questions. So we'll do that show sometime at the end of August. So you have the next couple of weeks. Get me in some questions. You can do that over at wellsteading.com. Use that contact form there to ask some intelligent questions. And we'll get those answered coming up at the end of the month. The other thing I wanted to mention is that as far as my overall stock position, as I've said in the past and as I've blogged over at investablewealth.com, in spite of the market climbing the wall of worry, I remain about 50% in cash. I think that unless we get a vaccine between now and November, it's very likely that we could see a pretty good correction or pullback in this market. If that happens, I want to have cash on hand to buy into the dip. On the other hand, if we don't get the dip, then I want to have a percentage of my money in the market to take advantage of the current uptrend until I can rebalance and get back into it. Now, non-coincidentally, I think the odds of the market going up or down are at about 50%. That's why I'm about 50-50 in the market right now. And that's all I'm going to say about it in this episode. But if you come on back and listen to future episodes, I am going to cover the topic of the national debt and why I could care less. And as I've said for years and years, I am not worried about an economic collapse or any of the calamity that the chicken little gloom and doomers are always trying to sell you. That doesn't mean I don't think that the market could pull back, that we could go into a bad recession or depression or whatever, but I see those things as opportunities, not as catastrophes. Sure, there are problems all around us. There always are. But I am someone that believes in prosperity and in abundance. And I think that in spite of all the problems we see around us, there has never, ever, ever been a better time in human history to be alive. Because things are going to keep getting better for those that are prepared. And that's really, again, the theme that I want to kick off this seventh year of podcasting all about. And so let's get into today's topic, which is, you know, continuing the lifestyle of well-steading, which is celebrating your personal freedom and achieving that through financial independence. If you go back and listen to the first 10 original episodes of this podcast, that's where I talk about my 10 wealth building principles, the things that helped me get to where I am today. You'll hear me talk about things like wealth building principle number three, that production is the source of wealth. And again, that's why I'm so optimistic about the future, because with the convergence of all the technology and the things that are happening, yes, it's going to create disruptions and dislocations in the marketplace. I happen to write a book about that, right? The robots are coming. But remember this subtitle of that book. It's a human survival guide to profiting in the age of automation. While automation and robotics is going to be taking a lot of people's jobs away, for those that are motivated and prepared, 
and want to go out and take charge of their own life, well, they can use those same tools to increase their personal productivity so that they can build their own wealth. Now, in this episode, I'm not going to harp on those 10 wealth building principles. I've talked about them over the years. The episodes are out at wealthsetting.com. Um, incidentally, if you ever want to listen to a particular episode of the podcast, you simply can go to your browser and say wealthsteading.com slash and then the episode number. So if you wanted to listen to the sixth wealth building principle, which is the sixth episode of the original podcast, you'd simply put in wealthsteading.com slash six. If you wanted to listen to today's episode, which is 315, you'd enter into your browser wealthsteading.com slash 315. There's also a search function on both of my websites, investablewealth.com and wealthsteading.com, where you can put in keywords or phrases and then see if I've blogged or, you know, mentioned something like that in an episode. How about I digress? Listen, bottom line here is in today's episode, I want to continue to build upon my 10 wealth building principles. And I guess if I had an 11th wealth building principle, it would be about perseverance and resilience. Now, those attributes have always been important, but I think in our modern life, they're taking on an even larger aspect because so many people are just so darn lazy and entitled and they expect good things to just happen to them or they expect not to have hurdles or obstacles that they have to overcome. Come on, get real. It's very unlikely that you're going to have any type of success in your life unless you have to fight for it. Yeah, a couple people are born with trust funds or there's some people that win the lottery. But for the most part, for all the rest of us, you got to get off your butt and make things happen. That's always been a theme of this podcast. Over these six years of providing episodes to you, I hope that I never put out the false narrative that, that things are easy or that I have some kind of secret trading method that will make you rich. Or that if you do these particular things, you're going to be successful in your career. And that's why I always discourage people asking me questions about things like, well, what's the best investment? Or what's the best stock I should buy? Or what's the best career for the future? There is no one best. It's all about you, your particular situation in the world, your talents and abilities, and how you can take the things around you and put them together in such a way that's creative and different than everyone else, and that you have the fortitude to take that dream and make it a reality. And that's whether it's a stock trading program or whether it's a job or whether it's starting your own business. It's not going to be easy. One of the inspirations for my life and for my 10 wealth building principles and someone whose shoulders that I stood on to get where I'm at, and that's my grandfather. And if you've listened to my previous episodes, particularly in the, in the early days, I talked about my two grandfathers, which were very instrumental in my life. One of them, my maternal grandfather, was a coal miner. The other one, my paternal grandfather, he was an Italian immigrant, and he was a day laborer. Mostly he made his living from working on the railroad. These were the kind of men that I looked up to and that I learned from when I was growing up. And although in their lives, they never achieved a great deal of wealth, wealth in the form of money, they were very successful 
at building a quality lifestyle and a lifestyle where they were wealthy in things that ultimately mattered. Things like family and personal relationships. And again, although they didn't have a lot of money, they never were in debt. They were never enslaved to the material things of the world. And so in that element, it was through their own self-sufficiency and their discipline that they were free men. And today I'd like to specifically talk about my Italian grandfather, because the man had a remarkable, amazing life. And the key attribute of his life was not only that he was a hard worker, but that he overcame obstacle after obstacle. And he was so persistent and so resilient. And he always persevered, no matter how tough or how hard things got. Let me tell you about him. He was born in 1883. Now, if you do the math on that, it's remarkable and amazing that I really even ever had the chance to know him. I mean, think about it. 1883 was like within 20 years of the Civil War. The things that he saw over his lifetime were amazing. He was born in a remote mountain village in southern Italy. And unfortunately, as I go through and tell you this story, I'm doing it through memory, through the word-of-mouth stories that he used to tell me, I say unfortunately because I was not smart enough to write those things down and specifically document places and times and dates and to really capture all the amazing knowledge that this man had in his brain. That's one of my great regrets in life is that I didn't document my grandfather's life because it was a gift to me and really I think it could be to the world. So his life never started out easy. He was basically born, um, you know, in an impoverished, remote little village. His father died at a very young age. I don't know if his dad died when he was, you know, in his 40s or exactly when it was. But I know that my grandfather, who was the oldest child in his family, had to leave Italy when he was about 16 years old to come to America so that he could make money to support his family and, you know, to build his own future. So imagine a 16-year-old kid on his own, getting on a steamer ship, crossing the ocean, coming to America with no money in his pocket, no command of the English language, and virtually no employment skills. My grandfather had a third grade education. All he really had was his work ethic and a strong back. But you know what? He was a little guy. And when I say little, I mean little. I think... You know, if he was lucky, he was five foot five and probably was shorter than that. As I've gone back and researched old documents, I found one census entry um, from like the 1940s where he was interviewed by a census worker. And I think they put down that his height was something like five two. And I've got to go back and research that because I don't think he was that small, but he was a little guy. But you know, Antonio was tough and he was motivated and he was strong. And so he got a job as a day laborer, basically digging ditches. You know, we look at the future and we say, oh, robotics or computers are going to put us out of work. Well, my grandfather and his generation were basically put out of work by the backhoe. And before we had backhoes and excavators and the type of heavy equipment that we have today, all that work was done by manual labor. And my poor little grandfather was one of those tough little immigrants that dug ditches for a living. Yeah, that's what he did and any other kind of job he could have. And, and much like immigrants today, 
he didn't just stay in America. You know, he came here when he was about 16. He stayed a few years. He made some money. He went back home. He married an Italian wife. He had a kid and, you know, then they came back to America because this was the land of prosperity. Here in America, the streets were paved with gold. He really believed that. He believed that the opportunity was here for him if he worked for it. And so when he did come back on maybe a second trip or so, this time he upgraded, he got a job in a factory, and life was going pretty good for him. He had his wife. At this point, they had a couple, maybe three kids. He was far more prosperous than he would have ever been in Italy. But all of a sudden, tragedy comes along. He gets sick. He's working in a dirty, filthy food processing plant. I, I believe from the stories that I remember, it was like a, a sugar refining operation or some type of a sugar processing facility. Of course, there were no OSHA standards then, and the work was dusty and grimy. And, and as a result of breathing in that horrible, filthy air and all the dust and who knows, probably having tuberculosis or pneumonia and other kind of complications, he became extremely sick. So sick, in fact, that the doctor told him to get his life in order that he was going to die. And guess what? If you're an Italian immigrant living in Philadelphia in 1913 and you got a wife and three kids, there's no social security or any type of social welfare system to help you out. And so with this onset of bad health, what that meant was is that he had to abandon any lifestyle that he had in the United States, scrap up what he could, and move his family back to Italy, where he had a family support network that if he died, his wife and children would be taken care of by family members. And so that's exactly what they did. They sold off what they could, they raised the money, they bought the steamship tickets, and they hightailed back to Italy. And they moved in with my grandmother's family. And Antonio just resigned himself to the fact that he was going to die. That's just the way it was. But you know what? As luck or as blessings would have it or providence of God, you know what? He lived. He got out of that filthy, dirty, grimy job that he had to do and probably breathing in the good, pure mountain air from the remote Italian village that he lived in, it brought him back to life. He recovered miraculously. In fact, he became so healthy that his wife, Maria, got pregnant with their fourth kid. Ah, life was good. Uh, no, no, actually it wasn't. They were horribly impoverished. Yeah, he was alive, but they're back in Italy with no job, with no opportunity for prosperity. And now, not only with a wife and three kids, but a wife that was pregnant with a fourth kid. Oh, and when you think things couldn't get worse, well, guess what? World War I breaks out. And poor old Antonio, at the age of about, you know, 31 years old, he gets drafted into the Italian army. Yeah, and it gets worse. You've heard about the tragedy and the horror, the inhumanity of World War I and things like trench warfare. The fighting and the conditions were absolutely brutal. He was frequently on the very edge of dying. Uh, there was this one time when an artillery barrage came in. It was a direct hit on the trench and on the position that his unit was taking shelter in. And it was so devastating, in fact, that when after the repercussions of the explosion subsided and Antonio stood up, he was the only one left in the trench that was alive. 
Yeah, miraculously, again, his life was spared. All of his comrades, the men around him, they were dead. His position was overrun by German soldiers, and he was taken captive and made a prisoner of war. And this is early on in the war. Again, I don't, unfortunately, have the exact dates and places, but I think he was a prisoner of war for something in the neighborhood of at least three years. And conditions were even worse than living in the trenches. So bad, in fact, that he was nearly starved to death. He was completely emaciated. My grandfather used to say that the Germans during World War I experimented on the Italians so that they could perfect the Holocaust for the Jews in World War II. He used to tell me stories about how he survived, about how he had to eat bugs and rats or whatever he could catch, that if he got something as minuscule as a potato peel or a slice of an apple or something, that those were the kind of things that sustained him. And it's kind of amazing because when he used to tell me these stories, as bad and as horrible as the conditions were, he actually had some fond memories of them. My grandfather, among his many talents, was that he was a musician. He could play a little instrument called a concertina. It's a button box, sort of like a, a teeny little accordion. He could play that and he could sing. And remember, back in those days, you know, people had to make their own entertainment. And so, as a prisoner of war, because my grandfather was a musician and he could sing and he could play music, the German soldiers that guarded him, you know, whenever they wanted to have a party or some kind of a celebration... They would use the Italian prisoners as the entertainment. And so my grandfather would be tasked upon to sing and dance and, you know, play music for the, for the German soldiers. And my grandfather actually did have fond memories of, of those performances, despite the fact that he was emaciated and near starved to death. In fact, he used to laugh and tell me that that was one of the ways that he survived. Because if they had a party where the German soldiers were, Drinking and eating and, you know, getting drunk and listening to him play music, the soldiers would encourage him and tell him, hey, Antonio, play, play your songs, make music. And he'd be slowing down saying, oh, I'm too weak. I need food. I can't play the music. And so, you know, they'd give him a, a few scraps, a little extra food. In fact, one of the big benefits of playing music for the German soldiers was that after the party was over, he was able to go through the trash and scavenge any kind of food that was left over. And he would tell me about how he would dig through the trash and have to pick through where the German soldiers had, had, you know, spit their tobacco chew and things like that in the trash. And he'd have to dig through that to find a, a scrap of food to eat. And how if he actually even found some excess of food, he, he couldn't have eaten it all because he was in such a starved and emaciated state that it would have killed him. And he told me about stories of other prisoners where they they uh, maybe came upon some extra food or even they stole it from uh, another prisoner that was sick. They stole that prisoner's food and when they ate that extra potato, because their stomachs were so shrunken and they were so emaciated that that extra food actually killed them. And so my grandfather was wise and when he would dig through the trash and find some extra food, he wouldn't eat it all at once. He'd take it back to his prisoner of war comrades and he'd share it with them and he'd save what little bit he could and try and make it last. And that was one of the key ways that he was able to survive these horrible conditions he was in. And again, he had fond memories of these things. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry. He actually attributed those conditions to giving him the discipline and the resilience to live on. 
And it was not only his habits that he was able to hone during those experiences that helped him live, but during that time period, he also developed a great faith in God. Now, my grandfather was never a religious man. I don't think he ever went to church outside of maybe attending a funeral or a wedding. I remember that he specifically despised the Catholic Church. When a, a priest used to come visit my grandmother, he would always get up and leave and go out in the yard or in the garden because he just he had no desire for organized religion. But in his heart, he had a deep, deep faith. And that faith was built throughout his life. But in particular, it was that faith that got him through his prisoner of war situation. And it was a milestone in his life. And it was something that he never forgot and he was always appreciative for. Because he learned to have the faith that if he did his part, he felt that his Heavenly Father would be watching out for him. And God did watch out for him. Antonio survived those prisoner of war conditions. But you know, even on the day they got liberated, it wasn't just like he won the lottery or something. The Italian government was so poor and devastated after World War I that they really couldn't do anything to help their soldiers that fought. And so while, yes, Antonio was freed from the prisoner of war camp in his emaciated, near-starved condition, he had to pretty much find his own way back to southern Italy. And they walked and hopped on trains and... You know, him and his comrades did the best they could to get home, but he eventually did get back down to his little Italian village. His family nursed him back to health. He had yet again stared death in the face and came out alive. And in his tradition of rebuilding his health and being reunited with his family, well, guess what? His wife, Maria, got pregnant again, now about to have their fifth child. He's so happy to be alive. He's happy to be with his family. But guess what? He's now getting into his late 30s. He's living with his in-laws. He's got all these kids he's got to feed and support. He's living in this remote Italian village. There's no opportunity. There's no prosperity. There's no jobs. He's got to get back to America. He's got to start all over again, making that same voyage that he did the first time when he was 16. Yeah, now he's, he's smarter. He's wiser. He speaks the English language. He's got a lot more wisdom than he did when he was 16, but he's also a broken man. He's emaciated and, you know, barely survived as a, as a starved prisoner of war. And yet he's got to figure out a way to get back to America and start all over again. But he did it. He took on the challenge. And in fact, it was even harder than you would think because he could only afford one ticket. They scraped up all the money they could. They probably had to borrow money from family members and all they could come up with was one ticket for him to get to America. And so he left Italy alone. He left his wife and five children there. Oh, and in fact, it wasn't only the wife and five children, but old Antonio, he was definitely recovering because Maria was now pregnant with their sixth child. So he left all them in Italy. He gets back to America. This time, instead of settling down in kind of the immigrant tenement slums, of Philadelphia, he decides to go farther inland. He hears about the city of Pittsburgh, how there's a lot of jobs there. There's the steel industry, there's coal mines, there's all kinds of opportunity. And he, he wants to get out of the congested, filthy factory jobs in the dirty city of Philadelphia. So he settles on the outskirts of Pittsburgh, where there's a little Italian community, and he goes back to being a day laborer. He tries to get as many jobs 
with the railroad as he can, as far as laying track, hauling railroad ties, you know, mostly digging ditches though. He made his living with a shovel. This little bitty man, now close to 40, has to go out every day and toil from sunup till sundown, trying to hustle and find a day labor job. Every day he gets up, he goes to work, and his sole intent is to make enough money for that day so that he can save that money, he can live off some of it himself, and he sends the majority of it back to take care of his family in Italy. And his main goal is to someday be reunited with his family. You know, but how is he ever going to afford the passage for his wife and now six children? That's his dilemma. He knows that his earning potential is very limited, and if he's ever going to save enough money, he's got to reduce his cost of living to near nothing. And that's exactly what he does. Well, he's obviously a very resourceful man, and he you know, was born in the days before there was running water and electricity and all the other conveniences that we have anyways. So he was a tough little man, but the fact that he had survived World War I, that he'd survived trench warfare, that he was able to survive the near starvation conditions of a prisoner of war camp, so all that formed in him a resilience and a strength to say that, you know what, I can live on nearly nothing. He looked around his fellow immigrants and, you know, just like big groups of single men do, anytime you get them together, they would work hard, but they'd also play hard. They'd drink their paychecks. They'd want to party and get drunk. And well, I'm sure old Antonio participated in a lot of that, but he had the discipline to restrain himself as best as he could. And again, as much as, as possible, rather than being someone that was partying, he would be an entertainment for the party. So he would play his concertina and sing. And if you wanted him to provide music for your party, well, you had to give him some vittles and vino along the way. He also looked around at the tenement apartments and the slums that the immigrants were, had to live in and the high price that they actually had to pay just to you know get room and board somewhere. And he said, hey, I don't need to pay that. I can live on my own. And so his plan was to basically put together a hobo camp. You've maybe seen movies about the, the depression where these hobos live alongside the railroad. Well, that was his scheme. That was his survival plan. He got together with a group of men and they commandeered an old abandoned boxcar. Yeah, and in fact, that's probably a, a stretch of the story. I think the truth of the matter is, is that I think him and his friends just physically stole the boxcar from the railroad. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, you get a group of about a dozen strong immigrant laborers and they literally just pick the boxcar up off the track and they carry it, you know, 30 feet or so into an adjacent field along the railroad tracks. And they set up camp in that boxcar. And so every day Antonio would wake up. He lived right by the railroad. So he would go there to try and get hired on for some kind of a day job. He'd get his little bit of pay. And at night he'd come back to the boxcar and that's where he lived. He did that day in, day out, in the bitter cold of winter, the sweltering heat of the summer. He did that for years, living in that boxcar, sharing it with the other transient Italian immigrants that would be passing by. Again, I don't have the exact amount of time that he lived in that boxcar, but as I try and piece together his stories, I think it was something on the order of maybe four to five years that he resided in that boxcar and that he saved all that money sending it to Italy, 
so that his family could eventually come to America. And that goal was eventually reached. It was 1927 when they finally had enough money that his wife and his six kids could come to America. And although he was grateful to be reunited with his family, you know, things didn't get any easier. He was still a poor, impoverished Italian immigrant with a third grade education that had to get up every day and go dig a hole for a living. Now he's in his mid-40s, and oh, by the way, over the next couple years of being reunited with his family, Maria gets pregnant again and has two more kids. So now they're up to eight children that he's got to feed. And not only that, but think about the global situation that was happening around this time. The country is going into a depression. So he not only has to try and scrape and do what he can to get a paycheck every day, and he has his large family to take care of, but the economic conditions in the land of America where the roads are paved with gold, even America is now going through a major depression. And so he's got to survive that. But he does. He perseveres. He keeps working. He raises his family. He improves his living conditions. He takes his little shack and he adds indoor plumbing and electricity. And he each year plants a bigger and a larger garden and raises small animals and does all he can to be self-sufficient and supplement his meager income by farming his little homestead. And just like he worked and lived day in, day out in that boxcar, he does the same thing in that little shack that he lives in, but he keeps improving it and making it better year after year. And he establishes himself as a very hard worker, a very conscientious laborer, so much to the fact that he actually gets hired on for a full-time job with the railroad. This is like when he's 50. He really gets his first full-time employment. I mean, to him, this is a dream, a level of prosperity and security that he couldn't even imagine. And he doesn't achieve this until he's like 50. But he doesn't sit back. He doesn't rest on his laurels. That little man, every day, goes to work for the railroad and busts his butt for the next 20 years where he actually earns and, and retires with a pension from the railroad at age 70. And he told me that the only reason he even retired at age 70 was because they made him go home. They said, ah, Antonio, you're too old. Go home. Go retire. And he went back to his little shack, his, his little property that now he had built into a productive homestead. And at age 70, he worked that homestead every day, day in, day out, from morning till night, increasing its productivity, increasing its fertility, and he did it for the next 26 years. Yeah, old Antonio, he lived to be 96 years old. He got up every day, even into his 90s, and worked his homestead. But the bottom line was, that's what he wanted to do. He did what he wanted to. He controlled his life. He used to use the phrase and say that he was the captain of his own ship. He didn't let fate or bad luck or destiny or hard things get in the way. He charted out his own path, and he made sure that he advanced every day of his life. And his memory lives on with me, and it's what I pass on to my ancestors. I'm where I'm at today because Antonio made those sacrifices for me, because Antonio worked hard and made those sacrifices for me, you know, back before my dad was even born. My father was number seven of eight. So 
if Antonio hadn't lived in that boxcar for so many years to save the money to bring his family to America, my father would have never been born. I wouldn't be here today. And without the example that I saw through Antonio, with his persistence, with his resilience, and even with his faith in his creator, without those things, I wouldn't be the man that I am today. And so as the Wellsteading Podcast goes into its seventh year of podcasting, I want you to remember the story of my grandfather and how he always got back up and kept fighting. Whether it was bad luck or war or poverty or disadvantage, no matter what came along that tried to knock him down, he got back up and he kept fighting. He did it. He was an example to me and he can be an example to all of us. If you want to have wealth, if you want to have personal freedom, if you want to have independence, it's not going to be easy. No one's going to give you anything. You need to get up and work and keep fighting for it. Here in America, the streets are still paved with gold, just like they were for Antonio. And in fact, it's even better. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I believe that there's never been a better time in the history of humanity to be alive. The opportunities are limitless. Well, hey, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for letting me indulge you with the story of my grandfather. Keep coming on back for future episodes of the Wellsteading Podcast. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.